0: Y'all again for being here, and I hope you're. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew there, and, and we're in Titus, and right after First and Second Thessalonians, right after First and Second Timothy, you have Titus there, a short book, just three chapters, and we started this book uh, last week, a study of Titus, and we're just going to cover a, a few chapters today. We knew that I knew that my time would be limited, but I don't. I don't want to rush through the word. I, w- I want to make sure we get it, and this is a very key section. And, and I've entitled the, the sermon today, Character Matters, because character matters. Character absolutely matters. How we, how we live as believers, how we conduct ourselves, absolutely matters. And, and we saw last week that the, the, the foundational thought uh, that Paul begins with here in Titus is that he was a bond slave. That he, was a, he was a slave. He was a bond servant. He was master. His master was Jesus Christ. And we said that was foundational to everything. See, Paul was owned. He was not his own. He was owned. At, at the point of, on that Damascus road, when Jesus Christ came to Paul and Paul repent, repented of his sinfulness, he became Jesus's. Jesus was his master. So, but not only did Paul have a master, Paul has a message. And we said that not only was Paul you know, a slave, all believers, if we're truly believers of Jesus Christ, he is our master. He's more than a friend. He's more than a buddy. He's more than a father. He's more than any of those things. The title that, the title that, that reigns supreme over all of those is master. We're slaves. But, but Paul was given a message and we were given a message and that message is the gospel. That message that just like Paul, you and I have come in, we're born into this world with a problem and it's called sin. And that sin separates us from God. God is a holy God, a perfect God. He's not going to have relationship. He cannot have fellowship with sinners. And every single one of us are born that way. We don't sin. we We don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We were born that way. And the penalty of that sin, Romans 6.23 says, the wages of that, the penalty, what you get for that is death. The reason people die ultimately is not old age, it's not sickness, it's death. It's sin, I'm sorry, it's sin. That's the penalty for sin. And, And God hates sin, He must punish sin. But yet instead of punishing you and I for our sin, He's given the opportunity for our punishment to be placed upon Jesus Christ. So there's only two options. Either I'm going to pay the penalty for my sin or else I can place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I can place myself in Jesus Christ. I can follow Him. I can believe in Him. I can be found in Him. And the penalty that I deserved could be placed on His shoulders. 2 Corinthians 5 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And we looked last week that, that that life of righteousness that God puts in us, it bubbles up out of us in the, in the form of sanctification, in the form of what we see today. There will be evidences. Do We do not have the privilege or the right to call ourselves a believer if we do not live in submission and seek to live in submission to His Word. He's our master. At best, we've foregone the privilege of being called His child if we're not going to follow and that's what Paul talks about today, that, that character matters. He is our master, and he is saying, look, if you're going to represent your master, here's, how, here's the life that he's going to produce in you. It's not me pulling up my bootstraps and doing better. It's No, it's the righteousness that God has put in me in, sanct- in, in salvation lives out of me in the form of sanctification. It's Philippians 3, work out your salvation with fear and trembling that which dwells in me in the name of Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit comes out of me in the form of obedience, in the form of following, in the form of submission to my master, Jesus Christ. And and see, the thing is, and what Paul says here and, and makes it very clear when we think of slavery and we hear the words "master," we think of very negative things. But hear this: we serve the greatest master who ever lived, and his name is Jesus Christ. It's no burden. It's no. It's no killjoy to serve Jesus Christ. He's the greatest master, the greatest father, the greatest friend, the greatest. He is the greatest. It is a joy to serve him. It is a joy to live under the banner that reads Jesus Christ's slave. The title over my life is slave and yet I'm a slave to the greatest master there's ever been. And it's no joy, it's no it's no struggle. It's no burden to serve, to obey, bottom line to be loyal. What God calls for from his people is loyalty. If I was to sum it up in one word, it's loyalty. It's loyalty. And in our lives, what we see today builds on that character, how we live as a believer in Jesus Christ absolutely matters. Our, our verbal gospel should be backed up with our lives, with the character of our lives. It's not just professing Christ and living how we want to live. It is professing Christ and living as he lived and, li- and allowing him to live through us. Godliness Holiness, purity, all these things, they should mark the life of a believer. Absolutely should mark the life of a believer. And because because of this one reason, it validates the gospel. And that's what we see all throughout Titus. Our lives validate the gospel, are to validate the gospel that we profess with our mouth. Our lives should validate that. And everything is about the gospel. Everything is about the gospel. Everything as a slave is about honoring my master. And so what he says here in verses 5-9 through nine fall under the, under the arching principle of this. And you see it on your, on your handout there. It's character is necessary. What Paul says is character is necessary if the church is going to function properly and have an impact on the world around us. How we live matters. The situation in Crete was, was one not too unlike what we see in America. It was a melting pot of ideas of religions, of philosophies. Crete was an important way station for for commercial um, ships as they, they passed through. So all kinds of people from all different places would find themselves at Crete. And Paul said, well, that's a great strategic place for the gospel. They, they saw lots of lifestyles, lots of philosophies, and Paul said, and some, some other believers, they go to Crete and, and they establish a church. And, and these lifestyles, these philosophies, these um, false religions, they, in, they in undoubtedly made a mark on Crete, on its society. And I think we look around today, undoubtedly, America being the melting pot that it is, there's marks on us as a country. We're marked by that. And the churches in Crete began to lack some of the things that God had called them to be and to do. Not much unlike what we saw in Corinthians. We just got studying. We just finished studying. Rather, The the church refused to keep things outside the church that belonged outside the church and they began to bring them inside the church. They allowed them to infiltrate the church. And and it was was preventing the church from displaying the gospel accurately. It was preventing the church from... From being the church, from 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 doing what the church was meant to do for 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 promoting the message of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel. They were being polluted. And Paul has sent Titus to set things in order. If you wanna, if you underline in your Bibles, if you circle things, circle verse five. Key verse to this chapter, to this whole book, Titus one, five. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. That is the purpose for Titus being here. The purpose from which Paul writes is to set the church in order. For the church to be effective. That's the key verse to the whole letter. He did this by appointing leaders of all the churches. And the terms elder, the terms overseer, the terms pastor, you'll see them in Scripture. They're in many ways and times they're used interchangeably. They're, they're essentially referring to the same office, the same... Sometimes there's an office, sometimes there's a function, but the role, what Paul is saying is the role of a church leader, the role of a church leader is to teach the Word to believers and to correct opponents. That's how Paul closes this section. Look it down in verse 9. Holding fast the faithful Word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both to exhort in sound doctrine, and refute those who contradict. That's, that's unfortunately, that's, I say unfortunately just because it's not good for your flesh sometimes, that is my job, to not only encourage, but to, to, to gracefully call you out when you deviate from the truth. That's a church leader's job. It's not just to pat you on your back all the time and tell you how great you are. If you step out of bounds with the word of God, unfortunately, I've got to come alongside of you in love. And and hear me, I do it because I love not only, I love the Lord more than anything, but I also love you. And no good parent, no good shepherd will watch their children about to destroy their lives or hurt themselves and not call them back. And nor would any good shepherd not do that. And the the role of a church leader is to teach the word, but to correct those who oppose the word, either through their words or through their actions. That's the role of a church leader, to teach and to correct. And in order for this to happen, in order for, for, for me to function in that capacity, in order for the church leaders that titus is going to work with in order for them to function in that capacity there's got to be some qualifications i can't i can't go to you and confront you of things that i'm dealing with myself that i've not got a hold on myself and paul says look titus you got to find some men in there in those churches that can lead and this is what their lives ought to look like so they have credibility so that they can be effective they need to be healthy themselves They need to be living according to the word of God themselves so that they can help others. You know, I I dread the day that Bradley comes home with geometry homework or calculus homework. I am going to be nothing to him. No good. I I need to know, I need to have a handle on these things so that I can help. And it's the same, it's a very similar thing with, with, with these character traits. It's a similar thing with, if I'm battling with the same thing you're battling with, if I don't have a victory over it, I got no business talking to you about it. I need to be dealing with it in my own life. And, and everything, everything in the church, everything rises and falls upon leadership. Churches need godly leadership. They have to have godly leadership. And, and this was so important to Paul. No, no church... No church when God, you just hear me, God uses these kids when they're when little Adrian has chapter six of Ephesians memorized. God uses that to spur me on. Number one, I'm a very competitive guy, so if you could do it, I'm going to do it. But but it reminds me that as the leader, I ought to be hiding God's word in my heart. God's not God's word is not something just for these little kids to be learning. It's something for their older kids, which are their parents, to be learning. We're never too old. We never get away from hiding God's Word in our heart. Man does not live, in Matthew 4, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We all ought to be hiding chunks of God's Word in our heart. And and leadership, the church will never rise above its leadership. And God felt so strongly about this four times in the New Testament. He gives the qualifications for church leadership. He does it in Acts 20. He does it in 1 Timothy 3. He does it here in Titus 1. And he does it in 1 Peter 5. You can go to those on your own. The lists have some very similar traits. And they have some very different traits. But the the core of all of these lists is the same. And what God is teaching through Paul and through Titus is the same. It's this. God places emphasis on our personal character and our theological competency. Personal character and theological theological competency. He places an emphasis on that. And, 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 And contrary to where we are as a people, God is interested in who you are More than what you do or before what you do. He is interested first and foremost in who you are, your character. Because what you do flows out of who you are and what you believe. We saw that last week. You can tell me what you believe about God all you want. I'm going to look at your life and you can look at my life and you can tell me what I really believe about God regardless of what you say you believe. We will live out exactly what we believe period, for better or worse. Who I am, who I am dictates what I do. My actions flow out of who I am and what I'm believing, and that's what Paul, under the inspiration of the the Holy Spirit, is saying here. You look at this list, you look at all the lists, the emphasis, the emphasis is on character, the, the, he does not mention but one activity, teaching. The only activity t- mentioned in this list is the ability to teach. Everything else is character-driven. Everything else for, char- for, for church leaders is character-driven. Character. And, and this, is, this covers every area of our life, not just who we are here for an hour or two. It's not just what we do when we're other believers. This, is, this character pervades our whole life. And, and before we jump in there, I want to say, you're going to read this list and we're going to go through this list and if you're like me, you're going to feel like a dog to some degree. You're like, man, I've fallen short at times in that. Nobody, nobody will meet this list perfectly at all times. It's the, it's the trend of your life that he's looking at. The themes of your life, we're we're not going to meet them perfectly all the time. No one is going to say, I'm perfect. Or no one is going to say, you know what, I've got that down, I'm good for the rest of my life. That's why we rely on the Word of God. That's why we keep the Word of God hidden in our hearts. That's why Colossians 3.16, the Word of God richly dwells within us, so that we're controlled by the Word of God. And church leaders have to be men who submit their entire lives to, to God, and that's what he addresses here. He addresses our entire lives, and the first thing he looks at in Titus 1 is our commitments. Look at verse 6, our commitments. He says, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Again, their task is to set the church in order. In order for that to happen, the men who lead these churches have got to measure up to God's standard. They've got to meet the expectations, and there is a standard. And Paul is saying, hey, if the church is going to be healthy, if the church is going to be sound, if the church is going to be effective at taking the gospel, their leaders must be above reproach in every area of their life. Above reproach. You can look at all the lists. Even here in Titus, he mentions above reproach twice. You can look down in verse 7, he's going to mention it again. Above reproach. What's he saying? What does that mean? We must exemplify godliness in all areas of our lives. Above reproach means this, there's godliness is the theme of all the areas of our life. The word word here points to somebody who is not liable to accusation or question regarding the personal integrity or character of their lives. They're not open for questions. There's not rumors floating around. They're, they're, They're not liable. The word describes somebody whose life is worthy of being copied. Somebody whose life is worthy of being copied. I heard one time of a church who, uh, for their elders, they put an ad, a large ad in the newspaper, and they listed the men who were uh, who were, they were seeking uh, to, to place as elders in that church. They listed their names, and they basically at the head said, if you know of anything about these men that we as a church should know about that would be prevent them if they do not exemplify these characteristics you please call the church and let us know we need to know about it you think my flesh saw that and i thought man that's kind of strong isn't it but that's a church that takes God's word serious see because i see you i see i see you here for about an hour or two maybe on wednesdays what do your neighbors see you as what do your co-workers think about you what do what people on the sports teams, what do they get out of you? I don't see all those areas. Above reproach covers all those areas. What, what's your Facebook life like? Huh? What, what, what are you doing there? What are you tweeting? Above reproach. You know, that church takes God's word seriously. Look, if you're not above reproach, you're not going to lead. And in order for the church, he, he goes on very, very specifically here. He says, In order for the church to be strong and healthy, you know where the above reproach starts? It heart starts in your home. And he says, This has got to be a one woman man. One woman man. The husband of one wife. Literally, literally, he says, One woman man, one woman man there. And everything about the man's commitments, they start at home. Don't try to export to others what you're not first doing at home. You be the man of God, you be the woman of God, and all these things they start at home. And sometimes, if we're honest, the home is the hardest place for us to do these things if we're honest. It's easy to do them at work because we get a paycheck. It's easy to do them out here because and then our home suffers. The home is where it begins. And, and what Paul says is hey, you find a man who is faithful to his spouse. And loyalty to the Lord is seen in loyalty to your spouse and loyalty at home. Can the person be described as somebody who's devoted to one woman? And then immediately, look where it goes. It goes to him as a father. He says, you must have children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. And guess what? Home training, training up your kids is where you learn how to be a leader in the church. You learn how to lead by leading your children. A man or a woman who can't lead their own kids has no business trying to lead other people's kids. Has no business leading in the church. Look, look at 1 Timothy 3, 5. He says, But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? That's pretty clear. You don't need to know Greek to understand what that verse is saying. You can't handle, if I can't handle Bradley and Sarah, why would I add to that? And and he says, you need to, the home is the training ground. The church leader can't have a divided home. He needs to have children and a wife who are able to follow his leadership, who are able to submit to him because they understand where he's going. And because it's about setting an example. It's about setting an example. And in Paul's day, A father's shame and a father's honor, his dignity, his reputation, his respect. It was completely tied to his wife and children and his home life. Completely tied. In today's world, we can completely separate that. Not in Paul's day. It was tied to that. And and, and if his home life was not in order, he needs to work there first. If you don't have time to deal with what you need to deal with home, I don't need to cause you to have less time by asking you to deal with stuff here at the church. Greatest thing I could do is to send you home to learn to be the leader at home. And Paul's point is clear. Church leadership starts at home. A godly husband, a godly father. If his home life is is not in order, don't expand his responsibilities to include the church. He needs to learn to shepherd his home first. A man is to be dedicated to his wife and his own children first. So that that's his commitments. His commitment is to the Lord. He's above reproach. His life is worth copying and it begins at home. But secondly, Paul deals with the conduct. Not only commitments but conduct that seeks to glorify the God the Lord or glory of the Lord. Verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. And again, what does he start with? Above reproach. Godliness. And being above reproach is essential. It's not optional. It's not, oh, they're such a good businessman. I, I, I know that they struggle over here, but they're such a smart guy. Well, then they're out. If they're not above reproach, they're out doesn't matter how talented they are, how gifted they are, it starts at home. And being above reproach, it deals with our inside and outside these church walls. It's not just what we do here, it's what we do out there. At restaurants, at the dry cleaners, at the sports fields, at the park, in business, what are you known for? How are you known? What's your reputation? And he says, if you're going to be a church leader, you're going to be above reproach. And, and, and the first thing, first thing is understanding that you're God's steward. He says that you are God's steward. If the church is going to be healthy, I have to understand it. You have to understand it. We don't own this. God owns it. We're simply his manager. I don't own my life. I'm the manager. I don't own my children. I'm, I'm the steward. I'm the manager. They're his. My job is to point them back to their maker. And, and, and we're not the owners, we're the managers, and, and everything is His. And, and if we do this, we, we structure our life to bring Him glory because, listen, ultimately you and I are accountable to God. You're not accountable to me. Ultimately you're accountable to God for our behavior because we're His stewards. We must seek to please Him, to serve Him, to obey Him at all times. Why? Because He's our master. I live to make much of Him. The gifts, the talents, the abilities that he's given me, I am to give them back to him. That is my form of worship, giving my whole life back to him to be lived for him, to glorify him. I'm a steward who's ultimately accountable to God. Not only must we be stewards, we have to be God-centered. He says there, not self-willed. That word there, it means somebody who lives for self. A person who li- This has got to be a person who lives for God and not for himself. They're not selfish. They're, they're, they, don't, they don't live their life according to their own pleasures, their own desires, or what makes much of them. They live their life on what glorifies God. Not only that, it, 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 leaders must not anger easily. That's, that's what he means there, um, quick-tempered. Not somebody who angers easily. Easily, doesn't have a short fuse. Look, look with me at James 1, 19 and 20 uh, on the board here. James 1, this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. What's he saying? Anger doesn't reflect the character of God. It doesn't reflect the fact that you've been saved, that you have the righteousness of God in you. Now, there is a time where you can be angry over the right things. You know, child slavery and, and and these other these other offenses that we see in, in our paper we, we've seen where this man supposedly uh, in Avila killed his wife and his children and burned out. That ought to anger us because it, it's an offense to God, and they were created in God's image and, and their lives were, were murdered suspectedly. That ought to anger us, but that's not the anger he's talking about here. Someone that doesn't anger easily. It, it, not only that, it ought, someone who's not addicted to wine. Not addicted to wine. Drunkenness is what he's talking about here. Church leaders, they've got to be careful that they're not addicted to wine. That, that, and it goes way beyond even that. We've got to be careful as church leaders that we don't do anything that causes others to stumble. We have to be careful. If a younger believer had a problem with one of the things that we see as a freedom, us by doing it will cause them to stumble. As a church leader, we're willing willing to lay it down. That's Romans 14 stuff. That's 1 Corinthians stuff that we saw. Willing to lay it down. If it's going to cause division, if it's going to cause strife, we lay it down. And interestingly, the next characteristic is leaders must not be quarrelsome, quarrelsome regarding their conduct. Somebody who's abusive verbally, emotionally, physically, maybe abuses others for their own gain, not quarrelsome. And again, think about that regarding something that might cause division in the church. They're not going to squabble over it. They're going to just lay it down. Why? Because God's glory is greater than my freedom. Glorifying God is more important than me getting my rights. And so you lay it down. And in order for the church to, to be healthy in our conduct, we need leaders who, who are, have integrity in all financial matters. That's what he says there. Not fond of sordid gain. It means somebody who doesn't take advantage of people to make money. They're not taking advantage of people in order to make money. First Timothy talks about somebody who is free from the love of money. It's not somebody who loves money. And you can see there in 1 Timothy 6 all the problems that come from a love of money. So so that's the commitments. That's the characteristics regarding our conduct. And then Paul goes into character. Look at verse 8. But hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. He says leaders must be hospitable. Literally that word there means lovers of strangers. And the importance of this cannot be missed. We, you know, our families can come in and we can send them to the Days in, or we can send them here or we can send them there. That wasn't the case here. If believers did not live with other believers, there was no place to live. Hospility, hospitality was of the utmost importance in that day. And he's saying, look, church leaders have to be hospitable. They have to be welcoming to people in their home. Their home is other people's home. Their stuff is other people's stuff. And, and, and that, is exactly, that is exactly what God has done to us in the gospel. He is a lover of strangers. Romans 5, 8-10 says that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us why we were enemies and not only that he took us in as believers he adopted us we must as leaders be willing to help those in need whether friend or foe we've got to be willing to help those are believer non-believer regardless of race regardless of social status because the credibility of the gospel is at stake why the gospel credibility is at stake our lives must match up our words But not only hospitable, he says they must love what is good there in verse 8. Love what is good. That that literally means it's somebody who pursues what God says to pursue and it's somebody who avoids what God says to to avoid. I don't get the final say-so on what is good and not. God's Word gets the final say-so on what is good. If He says it's good, it's good. If He says it's not good, it's not good. No argument. I love what God says is good, and I hate what God says to hate. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, 20. We, we just saw this a, a couple weeks ago in our, in our study of 1 Corinthians, but he talks about, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. We ought to be ignorant of some of the evils in this world. We ought to be childish in our knowledge of the things of this world, of the evil. Because it's not good. We don't pursue it. We don't want to be around it. And It is for the health and the integrity of the church. But not only that, leaders must be just and devout. And and then he goes on to say self-controlled. That's talking about righteousness. It's the character which God has put in us. It shows out in our lives. We're righteous. Why? Because he's righteous and he's put righteousness in us. He's declared us to be righteous. So live like it. It's God living out through us. It's a life that is, that is unpolluted, unstained by the things of the world. It's a life that's holy. It's a person who's committed to godliness and committed to Christ's likeness. It's, it's a life that is a reflection of Jesus Christ having redeemed them. It reflects that, that you've been redeemed. It's a life that the fruit of the Spirit is just overflowing out of us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control is exuding out of us. Why? Because the Word of God is controlling us, Ephesians 5.18. It's, it's it's, leaders must be under control, he goes on to say. Self-controlled, they've got to be under control of their emotions and their thoughts and their actions. It's somebody who is mastered by the Word of God and led by the Spirit of God. They're they're controlled, Ephesians 5.18, filled by the Spirit. That's the kind of leaders the church needs. And lastly, Paul talks about the convictions. Convictions. He's looked at your commitments, our conduct our character and now our convictions verse 9 holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict and if the church is going to be healthy and be who it was called to be we must have definite convictions about the truth definite convictions We we must be devoted to truth. This is not somebody who changes truth based on their circumstances. No. They allow their circumstances to be run by the truth of God's Word. Their convictions about who God is dictate their circumstances. They don't allow their circumstances to dictate who God is. Devoted. Devoted. They build their life on the Word of God alone. And, And leaders... Why do you do that? So that you can, can, you can um, go against false teaching, is what he says. Leaders must be convicted that false teaching always leads to false living. Why do we, why do we want these little boys and girls, why do we want their parents to have God's Word in them? Because that's, that's where a right living is produced, by right thinking. We have the Word of God in us, and right living follows. Follows. Right teaching leads to right living. Wrong teaching leads to wrong living. Leaders must be convicted that wrong believing will always lead to wrong living. There's no room for compromise. That's why we want the truth of God's word in our lives. So that we're not believing lies, lies. So we have truth in our hearts to contradict and counteract the lies that Satan tells us about ourselves and about others. The Word of God forms that baseline and and Satan accuses me and I can say that's contradictory to what God's Word says, throwing it out. Hey, I see something, well that lines up with God's Word, okay, let's deal with it. But ultimately it's so that this person can teach and refute others who refuse and oppose the Word of God. We are to be a defender, a preacher, a teacher, and sometimes a physician. And we have to do surgery. And it's not for popularity's sake, it's for purity's sake. It's for purity of the body. Look at Romans 16, 17 real quick. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Because they're causing division, they're causing problems. And in order for us to be the church that we're to be, we must be willing to encourage but also refute. There's going to come a time where we have to stand up and refute. And we, we ought to do it graciously. We ought to do it lovingly, not out of pride, but out of a love for the Lord. And out of love for that person and a love for God's word. And for the integrity of the gospel. We want to live lives that back up what we say about God. And back up what, what, what God's word says He's done for us. And all of this, all of this is, is seen as the result of grace in the person's life. It's got to be based on grace. It's not my ways. It's not wanting people to live according to my standards. It's grace. It's having received grace. Look over with me in Titus two, eleven 11 through 14. He talks about wives and husbands, and how they're to live, and slaves, and look what he says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Our lives are a response to grace. It's a response to what he's done. And if we're going to bring order to the church, we need leaders who live this way. But but here's the application. This goes way beyond. You may be sitting here saying, I don't want to be a church leader. I don't need to be a church leader. These characteristics are are applicable to every single believer in Jesus Christ. These are characteristics that ought to describe all believers at any time. If if you're not an elder or a deacon or a teacher, you think, well, I'm off the hook. No, you're not. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? These things ought to mark our lives. If we're a believer in Jesus Christ, these things ought to mark our lives. They ought to, all of us. Look, Look at Ephesians 5 real quick. Uh, ephesians 5 this is a a general uh, a command here therefore be imitators verse 1 of god as beloved children and walk in love just as christ also loved you and gave himself up for us see the grace you're responding to grace and offering and a sacrifice to god as a fragrant aroma. listen to this verse 3 but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper for saints And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. What's he saying? He's saying our lives, the general theme and truths of our lives ought to back up what we say scripture says. Our lives are are a demonstration of the gospel, and it gives credibility to our message. My life gives credibility. Your life gives credibility to your words. And think about that with regards to God. God did not just tell the Israelites that He was Jehovah Rophe, that He was provider. You know what He did? He provided. And from that provision, He says, look, this is teaching you a truth about who I am. He he didn't just say that he was a loving God. You know what he did? He loved people. And he loved those that were unlovable. And it proved that he was loving. God demonstrates who he is and our lives ought to demonstrate that as well. God demonstrates it. And all of God's commands, what God commands us in this book, it's not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's not him trying to seal our joy. This Book, the Bible, and all that it commands, it is, it is, his commands are demonstrations of his character. He's guiding you and he's guiding me into his character. He's allowing through my obedience to this word, his character begins to be lived out through my life. And I, my life begins to look like him, and I begin to be sanctified and righteousness and all these things flow out of my life why because that's my father's character that's my father's character and our lives are proof of the excuse me of the gospel and god himself i i illustrated this way i i have a, I have a cousin and his name is jeremy and 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 his his father ray is my mother's brother younger brother and and his mom is susan Growing up, I, I, I loved Jeremy. I loved to be around him. He was about six, seven years—about six, seven years older than me. Mom, you think? And uh, you know, he was kind of in that next stage. Of, I mean, he had the cool cars, and he had the this, and I—I—I I, I, I loved being around Jeremy. And and Jeremy and his dad Ray—if they were here today, they look alike, they talk alike, they do all the same things. They have all the same likes, the same habits, all that. I, I mean, they were they are amazing. I found out just a couple years ago that Jeremy was adopted. Jeremy was Susan's son, and Ray married her, and he raised Jeremy as his own son. Now think about this. This is the picture. This is the illustration. Jeremy, through spending time with my uncle Ray... And through being raised by Uncle Ray, began to take on Ray's character. He began to take on his looks. He began to take on Ray's habits. He began to take on Ray's passions. He began to take on Ray's habits. He began to take on Ray's sayings. He began to take on everything that was about his fathers, even though he was adopted. And in that, he looks exactly like his adopted father. See, God in salvation has adopted us. He's adopted us. He took us out of, a, out of an orphanage that was, that was called slavery to sin. And, and, and through Jesus Christ, He has given the ability to open up the, 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 the doors and has said, come on in and live with me if you'll believe, if you'll trust, if you'll place your faith in my Son, Jesus Christ. And then guess what? You'll live with me and you'll dwell with me. And if you continue in my word, through obe- you will begin to look like me, your adoptive father. And as we study this word, as we hide this word in our heart, as we pray this word, as we avail ourselves to obey this word, the character of our adoptive father, God himself begins to show up in my life and your life, though we were adopted. You see it? The characteristics of this book, the commands of this book, ought to be in every believer's life, not just the leader's. Why? Because it's about reflecting the character of our Father. The Christian life, sanctification, is about taking on more and more and more and more of the characteristics of our Father, of growing in the likeness of our Father and less and less in the likeness of the world. I dare say Jeremy's life would have looked drastically different had he never been adopted by Ray but because of his loyalty and Ray's loyalty to him his life looks like his father's that's Christianity it's taking on the characteristics of our adopted father by walking with him spending time with him reading the word praying being around other believers submitting our lives to the word in doing that we take on the characteristics of our father in doing that, our lives begin to look like the Father's. You, Jeremy didn't have this list of do's and don'ts. didn't force this to happen. It happened gradually over time. As he walked with his daddy, as he watched his daddy, as he had a close relationship with his daddy, over time, his life began to look like his father's. And it's the same with you and I, believer. As we walk with God, as we spend time our lives will begin to look more and more like Him. And we have a responsibility to show God's character through our lives. A responsibility. It's through dying to self, and it's through living to Christ. We, we are God's representatives, no matter whether we're in church leadership or not, we're His representatives. Just like Bradley and Sarah Grace are my kids, everywhere they go, guess whose kids they are? Guess who they say? Oh, that's Chris. When it's bad, they say, that's Chris coming out of them. When it's good, they say, that's their mama coming out in them. But they reflect me. You watch them? They're li- The things that aggravate me most about Bradley and Sarah, guess who gave them those traits? I did. I see myself in them. And it's the same with God. Look, look at me in closing at Colossians one twenty-eight. Colossians one twenty-eight. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man and woman with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present every man complete in Christ. Verse 29, for this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Why do I do what I do? Because God's power works in me. His power is in me. Why, why do we have a Awana here? Because we want to present these boys and girls mature and complete in Christ. Why do we have small groups at 11 and discipleship groups on Wednesday night? Because we want every man and woman to be complete in Christ. 2 Timothy 2.15, which is a Awana's theme verse, that you would present a workman um, approved, not ashamed. That's a wana. A worker approved, not ashamed. That's what we want. So the application, as you you look at this, as you think about these truths, let me ask you a couple questions. Does your life and your beliefs match up? Do your life and your beliefs match up? Anyone in your life, in any role, co-worker, friend, family, whatever, would they be shocked to know you're a believer? Because your life and your words don't match up? What, what might your life say in regards to your response to God's grace? How, how well, if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, how well do you reflect the character of your father? Based upon how long you've been a believer, how old you are, do you reflect the character of your father like you should? Or, or maybe you were an 18 year old acting like a five year old? I don't know. How well do you reflect the character? any areas of your life, any areas of your life that you would sit here today and say, they are not, I have not submitted those to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I live in that area of my life for myself. I I do this over here for myself. Anything about your life that would disqualify you from church leadership. Does your life accurately reflect the character of God? If you're here today and, and we've talked a lot about the gospel. If, I, I want you to know clearly, 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 here's what we mean when we say that. I, I'm not going to embarrass you back and ask you to stand up and come down. You're here with family and all that stuff. and I, I want you to know that God's word is very clear. Every single one of us was born with a problem and it's called sin. And that sin separated us from a holy, perfect, just God. Nothing we can do to bridge that gap. We can't be good enough. You can't do enough. God in His great love sent His Son, who was sinless, who was perfect, to die on a cross to literally be sin for us. To pay the sin debt, to pay the sin penalty that every single one of us deserved, and that's death. Jesus Christ died. See, because God had to punish sin. He could not just let it go. He He would have ceased to be just and loving and a good judge. So instead of punishing the world, he made the opportunity for his own son to be punished so that we could exchange our sinfulness for righteousness, that we could exchange death for eternal life. That's the gospel. The gift has been offered. You have to receive it by faith. I can't force you. Your family can't force you. You don't get in by being good. You don't get in by being with the family. You don't get in by being here today. You get in by placing your life in Jesus' hands by placing your whole life, repenting of your sinfulness, admitting, that means agreeing with God that you're a sinner, and receiving by faith the gift that God has put out there, Jesus Christ. And if you really do that, you begin to get plugged in. You'll want to get plugged in in Bible studies and things like that, and your character will go from what it is now, and it will be transformed to reflect the Father who has adopted you through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And if you don't have a church home... We'd love to have you here. We'd love for you. We're not perfect. We're working out the kinks. That this church has an imperfect pastor and it's going to have an imperfect congregation. But we're loving, learning to love each other. And if you don't have a church home, we'd learn to learn to love you. And if, you've, if, if, if you have any other questions, I'll hang out down front about this gospel, about this church, anything. But uh, don't walk out of here not trusting Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Don't walk out of here trusting in your own merit. You will die and pay the penalty of your sin yourself and you don't have to. Jesus' blood has been offered to pay the penalty. Trust in it.